Donovan asked me, uh, what's the theme of the message? And I told him, and he picked this song, and it has, this was like the, is that it? I can't see it. I, I can see it here, but I can't see it there. Okay. Uh, show us Christ, show us Christ. I think that's uh, this, this uh, chorus. Is it a chorus? Okay. Glad you're still here so I can ask you questions. and so That's great. Uh, this chorus just reveals, it's really a summary of what we're going to be looking at today. Today I want us to see Christ in maybe a different way. Uh, and it is going to be, it's going to come through the preaching of your word. And the, the ultimate goal, as we'll see, is that uh, every heart will confess that Christ is Lord. So just let me pray even now that, that that would take place. Father, I pray that we would see Christ today. That we would see him uh, uh, deeper, that we would see him more. And Lord, that we would commit to him more as our Lord and Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. Today we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. Really verse 8 and then verse 9. And then next week we'll, we'll look at verse 9 through maybe verse 12. We might get a big chunk next week. But first we need to review the context. I just want us to remember where we've, what we've seen so far. In verses 1 and 2, Peter introduces himself and his audience. And he refers to his audience as elect exiles of the dispersion. They've been chosen by God, but they still live in this world which is not their home. There is a home, that, that, uh, a focus that they have, and it's not this world. They, they include, his audience, both Christians in Peter's day and in our day. We're part of the audience to which Peter is writing, which is, uh, is helpful, right? He's writing to us. And in verses 3 through 5, he writes to us about what it means to be elect. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is true about you, that according to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Then, at the beginning of verse 6, Peter writes, In this you rejoice, in all that it means to be elect, chosen by God, your new birth, your eternal inheritance, the security of it all. Rejoice. However, even though you are elect, you're also exiles living in this sinful world. And so in verses 6 and 7, Peter addresses the reality of being in exile. He writes, Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in 1 Peter, we've seen that as God's elect, we can rejoice in our living hope. Rejoice that we are born again to a, a future eternal inheritance. But as exiles in this world, we at present, right now, will experience various trials. And God is using those trials to refine our faith in Him. So our future 
Uh, what is to come looks very bright indeed. But what about our present? Is living as an exile just a series of, of trials that refine our faith? Uh, sometimes it seems so, right? We go from one trial to the next trial to the next trial, and then there's maybe two at the same time, and we're going, what is going on? So we say, was Jesus mistaken when he said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly, or was he just talking about our eternal life and not our present life on earth? Well, I don't think so, and I don't think Peter thought so either. Peter understands that our present lives are more than a series of trials. Yes, in this life, now there will continue to be various different kinds of trials, But those trials, difficulties, hardships, temptations are designed to refine our faith. And for those who have faith, this life, even with its trials, can be abundant. I think that's what we find in verses 8 and 9. Peter writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Right now, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is Peter's description of our present Christian life. And that's what we're going to look at today. And the first thing I want us to see is how Peter describes the reality of our present Christian life. What I mean by the reality of our present Christian life. Let me say that again, our present Christian life. Well, as we read verse 8, did you see how Peter describes our experiences? He makes several declarative statements. You love Christ. You believe in Christ. And you rejoice in Christ with an inexpressible and glorified joy. These are not commands. They're stated, they're declared as realities. This is how it is. And these realities are taking place even though you do not now see Christ. Now in our final point, there's three this morning, we're going to talk about why Peter emphasizes that we currently don't see Jesus. But for now, I want to ask and, and give a possible answer to the question, why does Peter tell his readers what their reality is? Why tell them they love, believe, and rejoice in Christ? Now, you might answer, uh, well, he's just giving them kudos, right? Describing the reality of their Christian experience. Maybe uh, the Christians Peter is writing to are continually loving, believing, and rejoicing in Christ with inexpressible joy. Maybe. But I'd suggest that if we look down a few verses where Peter writes to the same people, Verses 14 and 15, same chapter, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Like us, Peter's first readers were not uh, perfect. It was possible for their passions, their love, to not be focused on God, but on their former ignorance, their former sins. And so Peter must call them to live holy lives. They're not in a constant state of loving, believing, and rejoicing in Christ. So what's Peter's reason for describing it that way? Well, I think the answer is this. 
as Peter has already declared, we are born again. We are new creatures in Christ. And therefore, we are free to love. We are free to believe. We are free to rejoice in Christ. That is who we truly are. Even though that is not what we always experience. And Peter wants to let us know that when we are rejoicing, I mean, excuse me, when we're experiencing these things, when we're loving, when we're believing, when we're rejoicing in Christ, that is the reality of our present Christian life. That is uh, that in Christ, this is who you truly are. This is what it really looks like to live the abundant life that Jesus talked about. So Peter's description of this reality serves as a model, sort of as a fixed standard. As we live as exiles in this world, as we experience various trials, we can know if we're drifting away from from who we truly are. Are we getting away from, from who we are in Christ? And we can wake up, hopefully, and repent and return to reality. Return to reality. That's the title of a good book written by KPU Hannon, as a side note. Let me illustrate it this way, though. Let me illustrate it in terms of our physical health. For the most part, we know when our bodies are uh, healthy and when they're not. We know this because God has given us signs that tell us when we're uh, out of whack. Signs like aches, and pains, and fevers, and runny noses, and coughs, and stomach cramps, and dizziness, and insomnia, and strange growths in places. Oh, no, that's disgusting. And when we experience these signs, we know something is wrong, right? We know something's wrong with our physical bodies, and we, and we can do something about it, like take some medication, go to the doctor, get some rest, The point is, we know the reality that our physical body should be experiencing. Therefore, we know when we need to get help. But but sometimes we're unaware uh, when our spiritual souls are in need. Well, Peter gives us some, some diagnostic tools, if you will. He tells us what the Christian life really is. And so, as we take this description in, and as we compare it to our present experience, we can know whether it's time to seek help or not. And in our last point, we'll examine where that help comes from. But first, let's examine Peter's description of uh, the experience of our present Christian life. Peter includes three basic experiences, and, and they're related. These experiences describe the reality of the Christian life, the real Christianity, if you will. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's the picture. So let's examine each one in turn. Seeing each experience and asking, uh, thinking about whether we are in fact experiencing them. We begin with uh, loving Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. What does it mean to love Christ? Well, no surprise, the Greek word for love here is agape. And we've talked about the meaning of agape on many occasions. So I'm not going to belabor it here. But I do want to remind us of something that we seem to forget again and again. Love, agape, is an emotional 
feeling. It means to be fond of, to have affection for another. I think we understand this when we're talking about people in our lives, people we can see, right? When I say, I love my wife, you understand that I feel affection for her. She warms my heart. She brings a smile to my face. However, when it comes to Jesus, who we cannot see, we tend to think of love in a, a less emotional terms. We can think of love uh, only as an action sometimes. We take Jesus' words, for example, in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we turn them around and we make them say, if you keep my commandments, that is love for me. Jesus never said that. He said, if you love me, if you have feelings of affection for Christ, if Christ is your treasure, if he brings a smile to your face first, then the result will be keeping his commandments. The action follows the emotion. That is true love for Christ, and that is real Christianity. Real Christianity is relational Christianity. We have a loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And in that relationship, we obey, we serve, we sacrifice because we love Him, not because we think those actions equal love for Him. I hope you understand because the point is this. Real Christianity is not first serving or obeying Christ. Real Christianity, relational Christianity, is loving Christ. Having a deep, abiding affection for Christ. Treasuring Christ above all else, above all others. And out of that love comes willing, obedience, service, sacrifice, for the Christian uh, experiencing love, affection for God, uh, for Christ, is the heart of the matter. It is, according to Jesus, the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Real Christianity involves true heart, soul, and mind love, affectionate feelings for Christ. That is the reality, the standard Peter is putting forth. And so, if you don't feel affection for Christ, then you know something is wrong with your relationship with Christ, and you should seek help, which we'll talk about, again, I said, at, the third, at our third point. So, is that clear? Much more could be said about, about love. I thought about just doing the whole message on loving Christ, but I said, you know, I am, I'm not going to take five years to get through 1 Peter, so I'm doing all three today. But just know that that's sort of a beginning, just thinking about what it really means to love Christ. Now, along with loving Christ, the, the real Christian experience also includes believing in Christ. Maybe this is the one we're most familiar with, you know, you've got to believe. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him. Now, first notice how love for Christ is related to belief in Christ. If you love Christ for who He is, the eternal Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life, the, the one who died for your sins on the cross, 
then certainly included in your love is belief. You can't love what you don't believe in. In fact, I would say believing in Christ is the same as loving Christ with all your mind. Believing flows from the the head, the thinking, the mind. Uh, The Greek word for believe here is pisteo. And throughout the New Testament, it's translated by our English words faith and trust and belief. It means to be persuaded that something is true, to think, believe, trust, have faith that something is true, that that's the truth. And at the heart of our Christian experience, along with loving Christ, is a deep trust, a deep belief, a faith in Christ that affects our lives. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, for we walk, we live by faith, not by sight. We make decisions and and act upon them based on faith. Now, Christians are certainly not unique in this. All people everywhere, whether they admit it or not, live by faith. In many, if not most, uh, aspects of their lives. Uh, When we get married, we have faith that our spouse will be faithful. When we get on a plane, we have faith that the pilot knows what he or she is doing. When we buy something online, we have faith that the seller isn't a scammer. When we watch the news, we have faith that the facts are correct. When we follow the science, we have faith that the scientist doesn't have his own agenda. When we vote, we have faith that the politician isn't corrupt. Uh, Maybe not a good example, okay. And I could go on and on. Every day we make decisions and act based not on what we know empirically, not on what we have personally observed, but on what we believe to be true. Based on something, don't get me wrong, it's not, and we'll talk about that as well in the case of our Christian life. And when it comes to the world, our faith is often misplaced. Our spouse may not be, may not be faithful The pilot may be having a bad day. The online seller may be a scammer. The news may be fake. The scientist may have his or her own agenda. And the politician might possibly be corrupt. So as Christians, we are not unique in the fact that we walk by faith. But we are unique in the fact that our ultimate faith is not in the things of this world. Instead, our faith, our trust, What we believe in is Jesus Christ. In fact, it is our belief in Christ that results in our salvation. That's what Peter says in verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When we trust in Christ, when we believe that He died for our sins and rose again to provide us with eternal life, when we have faith in Christ alone, the outcome is the salvation of of our souls. We are born again, and our eternal inheritance is secure. But what I want us to understand is that our faith does not stop at salvation. It's not a one-time thing. As Christians, we continue to walk, to live by faith in Jesus Christ. And what that means is, our lives are, are, are characterized by a deep trust in Him. 
We trust Christ above all other things, above all other people, including our spouses and news anchors and politicians and, yes, even scientists. Now, I'm not saying that we can't have faith in other people, but that faith is necessarily limited because our ultimate faith is in Christ. And believing in Christ means that that we first look to Him, to His Word for guidance, direction in all things. It means that we believe His promises and obey His commands. Let me give just one example of what this looks like. So, So this is just zeroing in one example. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, He commanded, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, without going too deeply into this, using it as an example, it seems clear that Jesus Uh, would not want our lives to be focused on attaining material wealth for the sake of attaining material wealth. That he would not want us to pursue or trust in having excessive wealth on this earth. Instead, he would want us to use our lives, our time, our resources, our wealth for eternal kingdom purposes. Is that fair? Amen? So then... One way to know whether uh, you both love Him and uh, truly believe in Him is whether you're following His guidance with regards to your earthly treasures. And if you're not, then there's something, something wrong with your relationship with Him. And you need to seek help. And that's just one example. There are hundreds, thousands of examples we could look at in the New Testament Christ, or Christ's apostles give guidance, and we can say, are we trusting in that? Are we trusting in that more than uh, what the world is telling us, what we want ourselves? Believing in Christ means trusting that He is reliable in all of His promises, His commands, His counsel, and living based on those things. Really, it's living based on His Word. So at the core of real uh, relational Christianity is a deep love, affection for, and a solid belief in Christ. And that would seem to be enough to express what it means to experience the Christian life. But Peter doesn't stop there. He adds what, what some might find strange, others maybe even unnecessary. That is enjoying Christ. Yes, along with love and belief, The Christian experience includes joy in Christ. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, Peter says. Notice with regards to love and belief, Peter just uses a single word. Agape, pisteo. But when it comes to joy, he gives a a full-on description. Rejoice, how? With joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Wow, What an experience. Now let me first define this word joy, and then we'll look at Peter's description of it. The word joy is the Greek uh, kara, and it means joy, okay? Cheerfulness, gladness, 
delight, it is actually synonymous with happiness. It's a feeling. Now, possibly, because the Bible, uh, Romans 5.3, for example, teaches that we are to rejoice in our sufferings, that we are to rejoice always, it, it sort of lifts joy up. It seems that because of verses like this, or maybe other things, like we do with love, many Christians have tried to redefine biblical joy. If we're to rejoice in our sufferings, if we have to actually rejoice in all things, always, joy can't really mean happiness or cheerfulness, gladness, delight. So Christians say things like joy in the biblical context is not an emotion, even though it always had been before then. Joy brings us peace in the middle of the storm. Joy is something entirely different from happiness. Happiness is an emotion and it's temporary. Joy is a decision of the will. Sound familiar? Uh, maybe even sound somewhat spirit, spiritual? But these things, these thoughts, they lessen the reality of the joy we're to have in Christ. Again, joy actually means happiness, cheerfulness, gladness, and delight. Now, at times, during trials, for example, that delight may, may be expressed or felt more internally as it is accompanied, accompanied by sorrow. Remember we talked about that? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Joy is sort of always there. And then sometimes we experience sorrow. But joy is still real. It's still there. There's always joy knowing we are in Christ. Christian joy is not less than the world's joy. It is more. And maybe this lessening of Christian joy was already taking place in Peter's day as well. So he wants to be very clear. He writes, rejoice with joy. Peter's being uh, redundant here. Because the word rejoice literally means to jump for joy or to be exceedingly joyful, exceedingly happy, exceedingly glad. So Peter says, jump for joy with joy. And notice that the joy that he speaks of is inexpressible. You are so filled with joy, you are so busy jumping for joy inside, out, that you don't have words to describe what you're experiencing. Have you ever been in the midst of a trial, a difficulty, and maybe, or hopefully, you turn to God's Word? If you don't, then there's the problem right there. And you come across an eternal promise. Maybe you read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, about your eternal inheritance, your new birth. And that gives you perspective about that temporal trial. And all of a sudden, a smile comes to your face. You experience joy in the midst of your sorrow. You experience joy, joy, joy down in your heart. Where? Down in your heart. And this joy is inexpressible because the, the world wouldn't understand how you could possibly be experiencing joy when this trial is hanging over your head. As my favorite verse for the joy song goes, you've got that far out feeling that freaks out pharaohs down in your heart. Where? Down in your heart. Your joy during adversity will freaks people out. They don't believe it. 
It isn't something people can understand. Words can't describe the joy a real Christian experiences in the midst of trials. So your joy is inexpressible. And finally, it's also filled with glory. Your joy, our joy, is different from the world's joy. Not only because we can have, we can experience it in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sorrow, but because our joy in Christ is in Christ and therefore is filled with glory. People in the world have a joy. They even jump for joy. Maybe you've seen it. I was at uh, Staples Center in 2000 when the Lakers won the championship, game six. I was there and there was a lot of jumping for joy. On the court, off the court. But joy is not filled with glory unless it's centered in Christ. You see, the thing, uh, the thing enjoyed, whatever that might be, is what gives joy its character. If you enjoy uh, off-color jokes, lewd pictures, then your heart is dirty. And your joy is dirty. If you enjoy cruelty and arrogance, revenge, then your heart and your joy have that kind of character. Or the more you get your joy from, from simply from material things, the more your heart and your joy is shriveled up because the material things are so small. But we're not to seek our joy in the things of this world, but in Christ. Our joy is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And everything about Christ, who He is, you can't go wrong here, because everything about Christ, who He is, what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do, every aspect of who He is and what He does is glorious. And so our joy in Him is glorious joy. It's filled with glory. Real relational Christianity is inexpressible, glorious joy in Christ. And so if you don't feel this joy on a consistent basis, then you know something's wrong with your relationship with Christ and you need to seek help. So Peter's described the reality of our present Christian experience. And it's pretty up there, huh? It's pretty lofty. It's the standard, though. It includes deep affection, abiding affection, love for Christ, a solid belief, a trust in Christ, above all other things that affects how we act. And it's inexpressible. It gives us inexpressible, glorious joy. So does that describe your present Christian life? Now my guess and my experience is that most of us would answer hopefully at least, sometimes, on my best days, or that's what I'm seeking, that's what I'm aspiring for, I see it there, that's what I want. Well, if this is the experience you're seeking, let me help you and myself uh, find it in God's Word, literally, as we look at our final point for today, that is the condition of our present Christian life. It's here that I believe we find the key to growing in our experience of the real Christian life, of experiencing who you truly are in Christ. 
So what is the condition or the circumstance, the context surrounding our Christian life? And we find the answer stated uh, several times in verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter says that the Christian is experiencing love and belief and joy in Christ, but these experiences take place while not seeing him. Now, what is the condition of not seeing, yet loving, believing, and rejoicing called? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us, faith, 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is having the assurance, the conviction that something you hope for, something you honestly believe but cannot see will take place. So faith is certainly the condition of not seeing yet believing, not seeing yet loving, not seeing yet rejoicing. This is verified in verse 9 where Peter continues obtaining the outcome of your faith, what he's been talking about, not seeing yet loving, believing, and rejoicing the salvation of your souls. The outcome of your faith, the outcome of loving and believing and rejoicing in Christ is the salvation of of your souls. So the condition in which the Christian life takes place, at least currently, on this present condition, is that of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's the reality of our existence. That's the condition we live in. We don't see Him, yet we love, believe, and rejoice in Him. We have faith in Him, and that faith results in the salvation of our souls. We are saved by grace through faith. But how is that possible? I mean, how is it possible to truly love and trust and rejoice in Jesus when we've never and can't at this point see Him? Now, some explain this by saying uh, that Christians just have blind faith which means that our faith comes uh, apparently out of the air, or that we believe because we're naive. Nothing better to do, so we'll believe. No, I, be- I believe that faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The outcome of faith, which is a gift of God, God by His mercy causes you to be saved The outcome of faith is the salvation of your soul. So faith is a gift from God, but how does He give it? Again, He doesn't just snap His fingers and it appears out of thin air. I'm going to give you faith. And it just, oh, I got faith. So where does it come from? Or put another way, how can we love, believe, and have joy in Christ when we've never seen Him? Well, in verses 10 through 12, which we'll look at next week, Peter addresses this uh, sort of in a similar way. But today, let's let Paul answer the question. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, he writes, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That's a nice, uh, brief, succinct answer. 
Faith is a gift from God that comes as we hear the word of Christ. It doesn't come out of thin air. It comes by the means of the word of God, the word of Christ. So let me ask the question again. How is it possible to truly love and trust and rejoice in Jesus? How is it possible to have faith when we've never seen him? We can't see him at this point. I think the answer is that even though we don't see him face to face with our physical eyes, we do see him in another way, a more important way. We see him in the word of God, for he is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, John says. Paul describes this in Romans 15, 20 and 21. He's writing about his, his mission to the unreached peoples who could never see Christ physically. And he says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. In the preaching of the gospel, remember our song, Show me Christ, show me Christ, by the preaching of His Word, the Gospel, Christ can be seen in a way that is greater than seeing Him physically. Hundreds of people in Jesus' lifetime saw Him physically and never really saw Him. Seeing, they, they did not see, Jesus said. Their seeing did not result in faith. But there is a, a, a seeing that is infinitely more important than seeing with the eyes. And this seeing does result in faith. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul describes it this way. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual seeing in the heart of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And without it, no one has faith. Michael Card expressed the paradox of not seeing yet seeing in one of his songs like this. To hear with your heart, to see with your soul, to be guided by a hand I cannot hold, to trust in a way that I cannot see, that's what faith must be. Side note, Michael Card and I attended the same seminary and it might be good to listen to artists who actually have some background in biblical understanding. Okay, moving on. Michael's good. When the gospel of Christ is preached, oh, we read the Bible, which is the gospel of Christ, we can see Christ more clearly for who He really is. We can see Him better than many could in His own lifetime. If you read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and if you read them with openness to Christ, you can see the true glory of Christ far more clearly than most of the people who knew Him on earth could see Him. Nicodemus, the Syrophoenician woman, the Roman centurion, the widow of Nain, Zacchaeus, the thief on the cross, the throngs of crowds, the, the 5,000, the 4,000, the many that heard Him Preach. They saw pieces. They heard pieces 
But in the Gospels, you get four uh, complementary portraits of Christ inspired by the Spirit and and covering a whole range of teachings and, and ministry. The Gospels are better than being there. The book is better than the movie. In the gospel, you're, you're taken into the inner circle of the apostles where you, uh, where you never could have gone. You go with Jesus through Gethsemane and the trial and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the, and the meetings, His appearances after the resurrection. You hear whole sermons and long discourses, not in isolated pieces on hillsides, but in rich, God-inspired contexts that, that take you deeper than you could have ever gone as a, as a, a perplexed Gentile, uh, Jewish peasant in Galilee. You see the whole range of Christ's character and power, which nobody on earth saw fully as you can see it in the Gospels. You see His freedom from anxiety with no place to lay His head. His courage in the face of opposition, His unanswerable wisdom, His honoring of women, His tenderness with children, His compassion with lepers, His meekness in suffering, His patience with Peter, His tears over Jerusalem, His his blessing those who cursed Him, His heart for the nations, His love for the glory of God, His simplicity and devotion. His power to still storms and heal the sick and multiply bread and cast out demons and His sacrificial giving of His life for you, His death and resurrection for you. Most of those who saw Him during His time on earth saw only pieces. And even fewer ever got to see what we see by opening our Bibles and turning. uh, We got more than the epistles. I mean, more than the Gospels. We got these epistles. We're looking at one now. In these Spirit-inspired letters, we see what was going on, uh, what is going on behind the scenes of the Gospels, and what continues to our day. Have you ever watched, uh, you ever had a movie and you watched the special features? You can find out more about how the movie was made. You can get insight into the actors, the directors. Maybe not that helpful, actually, in your life. But in a similar but much more powerful way, the epistles provide us with deep insight into Jesus Christ. Just one example that helps us truly see Jesus. I mean, The whole thing helps us. I'm just going to give you a sort of compact example here. And I want you to pay attention because for the first time since uh, before the the shutdowns, I'm going to ask for some group participation. You guys ready? You can pull down your mask if you want to speak. I'm okay with that. But I'm going to ask you to, to, uh, to, I'm going to ask for a little... uh, group participation after I read this. In Colossians 1, chapter 15 through 20, speaking of Christ, the apostle Paul wrote, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, that's a picture. That's a picture of Jesus. So what, did you, what do you see about Jesus in just that, those five verses? Shout it out. He's the creator. He's the beginning. He was there from the beginning. He's not, a, he's not a part of time. He's outside of time. What else? Firstborn. He's the firstborn. He, he's sort of our example. We're to look to him. What was the other one? He sustains all things. If he decided not to stop sustaining, we would not be sustainable. That's good. What else? He's the reconciler. He came and he reconciled all things to himself through the cross. He's the head of the church. Oh my goodness. Peter's not the head of the church. Paul's not the head of the church. I am certainly not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We can look to him. Anything else? He is the fullness of, he's God right? He's God come in human flesh. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I'm not hearing that. He's a peacemaker. He's in control. Could we go on and on? I think so. I think so. I actually had two passages I was going to do, and I go, we probably don't have time. Uh, uh, Philippians 2. Five through, I can't remember, gives some great, you know, more insight. So we may not see Christ with our physical eyes, but we have something better. We have the the Word of God that tells us everything we need to know about Christ. And it's through hearing and reading and studying and meditating and memorizing upon this Word, the Word of Christ, that God gives you faith. Faith that sees Christ with our hearts and minds. Faith that produces a deep affection for Christ. A true belief in Christ. A joy that is inexpressible and glorious in Christ. Though you do not now see Him... Yet through His Word, you do see Him far better than thousands who saw Him face to face. And just so you know, we will one day see Him face to face and we'll be transformed completely. So I'm not against seeing Him face to face. I'm just saying right now, He's given us a better way than seeing Him face to face. And because you see Him with the eyes of your heart, You love Him, and you trust Him, and you rejoice with joy, inexpressible, and full of glory. So when you're not feeling loving affection for Christ, when doubts creep in, and you're not believing, you're not trusting in Christ, or when your joy is coming from other things besides Christ, open your Bibles and see Him. See Christ. Read and meditate on Christ. And He's everywhere, by the way. And do it again and again and again until your heart, your mind, and your soul experience love, belief, and joy in Christ. And then keep reading 
Keep studying, keep meditating on the Word of God, that your love and your belief and your trust, your joy in Christ will continue to grow, and you will experience who you truly are. It's through, it's through God's Word that we become... I mean, God has made us who we are. That's who we are. He's declared it so. You are righteous. But we become what God has declared us to be through His Word, through reading it, applying it, allowing it to saturate who we are, knowing it, through seeing Christ and being transformed by Him. That's how we experience real, uh, relational Christianity. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ as we, as we so often we forget about you. We're not loving you. We, we doubt. Are you really there? We're not trusting you as we should. And, and we're certainly not rejoicing in you. We're feeling only sorrow, sadness, depression. We're rejoicing in other things. We don't even uh, sometimes understand that our joy is to be from you, Father. I pray that you would help us to see what you've given us what you've called us to be, what you've made us to be, who we truly are, people who love you and trust in you and, believe, and, and rejoice in you with all our hearts and souls and minds and strength, Father. Help us to be those people. And Lord, thank you for your word. It's through your word that you give us faith, that you give us trust, that you call us and uh, help us to see Christ who we love and rejoice in, Father. Help us to be people of, of the word people who rely on it, people who, who uh, apply it, people who trust in it, that we might experience uh, the real Christian life you have for us. In, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you as you're dismissed this morning, and next week we'll continue our study of First Peter.